We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's the sale you've been waiting for. Now through Monday, get a huge 50% off the styles you need now with 50% off all jeans, 50% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, 50% off. Jeans start at 15 bucks for adults, 10 bucks for kids. Want fashion in a flash? Buy online and pick up in-store for free. Hurry, the sale ends Monday at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 829 to 9-2 excludes in-store clearance, jumpsuits, rompers, bubbles, active license, and men's package tees. Metrics that matter in prospect evaluation. Andrew Luck and the Colts are playing great football. And should the Ravens have played Flacco? We're talking all that and more on Roto Viz Radio. What's up, Roto Viz? I'm Dave Cabin, senior fantasy analyst at Rotoviz. This is Rotoviz Radio. I'm joined tonight by Matthew Friedman, editor in chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the Action Network. Week one of the playoffs is in the books. Any major takeaways for you, Matt? Uh, not really. Um, I think I was on the the right side of of all of the spreads in this game when I actually ended up making bets, which is kind of surprising. That's the first ha- <laughs> first time that's happened uh, in any week this year, but. Uh, I mean, I was impressed by, uh, Andrew Luck and the Colts. I mean, I, I thought they would win that game. Um, but I mean, they were, they were pretty dominant. Um, you know, I, I think they, they have a chance, uh, in Kansas city. I, you know, anyway, I, I'm impressed by them and the Cowboys, I'm surprised the Cowboys won, but whatever. That's just kind of how I am. Yeah. I, I kind of had the, the same way, uh, or, or kind of the same thoughts there. I think the Colts have just been really really impressive. The connection between T.Y. Hilton and Andrew Luck has been strong, but we now see Luck getting in a lot of different players into this offense. Uh, he's just looked really good. Uh, if you look at his 2018 season, passer rating of 99, uh, 4,593 yards, 39 touchdowns to 15 interceptions. Ranked in at about sixth with 20.4 points per game. But I think that, uh, especially down the stretch, we really saw Andrew Luck looking like that Andrew Luck that many were hoping he could be. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, the cat was really liking what you were saying there. Oh, you could hear me. It was was in total agreement. Yeah, there's there's no barricade currently. Um, Yeah. We're going to have to do a remodel uh, down here. He's driving me nuts. (laughs) Uh, but so I guess, I guess the question is right. Like you're with me that luck at this point is looking like the Andrew luck from a couple seasons ago. I don't know where you place him in the context of real football, but I think in, in fantasy circles, at least he's making a strong case for being a top five guy, maybe even the second quarterback that you would draft next year. Yeah. I mean, I think he's slam dunk top five. The thing that is interesting. So, so real football perspective, 
Um, I think he he's playing. He okay. He's very much like the same player, like the same cerebral player from a few seasons ago. But like, there's a there's a difference. Like he, I think he doesn't have as strong of an arm. Like I think that's that's fair to say. Um, yep. But he's in a much better system um, with a play caller who is uh, the best play caller he's probably he's ever had. But at least the best play caller he's had since uh, Bruce Arians um, in in his first season. Um, and then he has a much better offensive line than he's had in a long time. So I think it's, you know, like he's, he's a diminished player and like when you look at his arm strength, but he's probably a smarter player and he has the best situation he's ever had in his career. So like from a real football perspective, uh, I think it's a great situation for him. And then from fantasy. Yeah, I think easily top five. Um, the one thing that's interesting, and this is sort of like, uh, everything that, underpins the idea that you can always wait at quarterback. I would say there are maybe like seven or eight guys who feel like top five guys. You know what I mean? And like logistically, like they can't all be top five guys, but they're basically effectively like all top eight guys, all top five guys, because um, what will separate them uh, in fantasy scoring will be so small that effectively like they will all produce as if they were top five. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And also, if you look, uh, we talked about this a little bit, but you had guys like Matt Ryan, Ben Roethlisberger finishing really high this season. Um, There's just a whole lot of players that it could be, uh, especially with some of these young guys getting into the mix. Trubisky with his rushing production. I actually did want to note in the case of Luck, too, not a whole lot of on the ground production this season, but it's something we've seen him do in the past. And if he could kind of incorporate some of that back into his game, pick up another maybe two touchdowns on the ground next year. You're looking at a great season for him. Uh, and, you know, you still have guys like Drew Brees hanging around. Perhaps Rodgers uh, can put together a little bit more of an explosive season next year. It is a very top-heavy position, I think. Yeah, totally agree. So uh, talking a little bit more about the Colts, too, I think the defense has been playing very well. Uh, so it sounds like you actually do think that there's some situations in which they could beat the Chiefs on Saturday in advance into the AFC finals. Yeah, I mean, I've so like full disclosure, like I I bet um, a relatively small amount on the Chiefs when the yep. line first opened uh, in anticipation that I would research more throughout the week and that if I wanted to bet later on the Colts, I could easily do it. Um, or, you know, if I wanted to stay with what I had, I would. Um, right. So just kind of shooting from the hip. Um, I like the Chiefs at home. Um, you know, Arrowhead is a, a tough place to play to score points. Um, you know, I, I like Andy Reid coming off of the bye. I, I don't want to bet against Patrick Mahomes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the Chiefs will win, but it wouldn't be a surprise if if the Colts won. You know what I mean? Like, I, I could easily see them winning. Like, that's they, they've just made a habit of winning tough games. Right. I, I think that if they play this game out 10 times, it's very possible that you have the Colts winning at least three of those games. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I mean, it doesn't help that the game's in Kansas City, but the ultimate takeaway here is how improved that this team has become when you look at where they were last season to where they are this season. It's on both sides of the ball, which I think will help out Luck, Marlon Mack, uh, maybe Naheem Hines to some extent, Eric Ebron, yeah. and these other players in that offense next season. Because I do think that you're going to be looking at one of the uh, more concrete offenses, at least in where you can project the players in terms of their role next season. Yeah, this might sound weird. I think like one of the best things Josh McDaniels could have done for the Colts was basically like hire a staff for them and then not show up. You know, like, like, so yeah. defensively, like Matt Eberflus has done a really good job with like a very basic scheme. Uh, and granted, like it helps uh, that they drafted some good players, you know, but um, that like the staff has been really good. And then Frank Reich, I think, has done more than Josh McDaniels would have done. Like, I, I like McDaniels. It's nothing against McDaniels, but um, I'm really impressed with Frank Reich. Yeah, you you have to give a lot of credit there. And I think that uh, especially down the stretch, like I've said, I've just been really impressed with this team. Allen Robinson had a huge game against the Eagles yesterday. Of course, we all saw the Cody Parkey kick to lose things in absolutely heartbreaking fashion. Overall, I think it was a pretty good season for the Bears. I was pretty surprised to see the turnaround that they did have. 
Of course, I think that owners were expecting or hoping for more from Allen Robinson. We finally saw a game, though, 13 targets, 10 wrecks, 143 yards and a touchdown, had a 45-yard reception in there, which if you contrast that with his season, uh, he started in 12 games, 55 receptions on 94 targets, 754 yards, just four touchdowns, averaged about 12 points a game. I don't think that's what uh, people are hoping for from Allen Robinson, but after seeing a game like this, Matt, and him now having a full season, almost a full season under his belt with the Bears. What do you think his out like his outlook looks like next season? Yeah, I think it's that's a good question. I think it's similar to what we saw this year, but slightly better. So um, maybe closer to like nine hundred, a thousand yards. Um, and, and granted, like people should remember, he missed three games, I believe, during the regular season, and he yep. had you know he was also. I don't know. So people think that like ACL tears are like no big deal anymore. Um, and they're still like, uh, I mean, you know, like, I, I don't know. I think he was probably still like a half step slower than he would have been uh, if not for the ACL tear. And then he was also dealing with a hip issue for, you know, like a chunk of the season. So let's assume that he's uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit healthier uh, because he's just a year removed from the ACL tear. Um you know, as you mentioned, another year in the Bears offense, uh, let's assume maybe he plays 14 games instead of 13. Like, I think at that point, he's like maybe like 950, 1,000 yards and maybe six, seven touchdowns, you know, like uh, that's not bad. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I project him as a top 20 type of receiver. And I, you can't be banking on some of those seasons that he had early in his career. But I do think it might be fair to think that you could use him as a wide receiver three on your team. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I will be curious to see what the market is for him. Like, I think he could be drafted too low um, just because people will kind of think of him as someone who underperformed this year. Um, But I think we should expect him to be better next year. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, the other thing that we can say there, too, is as this Bears team kind of continues to gel and develop a little bit more, uh, especially his relationship with Trubisky, Trubisky comes along as a passer I think that there's there's certainly room for improvement there. But again, I don't see him as a top 20 type of guy. Uh, our obligatory reminder that now is as good of a time as ever to get that Rotoviz subscription using the listener only 30% discount rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. I was in a number of conversations this weekend uh, with some of the guys on the team doing a lot of planning, talking about a number of things on the prospect front, which, you know, if you're a Rotoviz reader, this is really when things get interesting. Uh, and the writing team has a lot of fun digging into these prospects, which is something that Matt and I are going to talk about more later. Uh, so we mentioned the Colts having somewhat of a possibility of beating the Chiefs. They're five point underdogs, but Of the divisional round games, Matt, we also have the Cowboys versus the Rams. Rams are favored by six and a half. You have the Patriots facing off at home against the Chargers. They're only four point favorites. And New Orleans is favored by seven and a half against Nick Foles and the Eagles. Which of those games are you most looking forward to outside of the lens of being a Cowboys fan? Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm explicitly not looking forward to the Cowboys game, Um, even though this is the first time in a while where I actually did bet the Cowboys on the spread. Oh, nice. um, Which will probably jinx the team. And so I'm apologizing to Cowboys fans out there. But um, I'm really looking forward to watching uh, the Eagles against the Saints. And, you know, they've already played once this season. The Saints destroyed them. But, uh, you know, it's it's the playoffs. It's it's different atmosphere, uh, different quarterback. I'm, I don't know. I'm excited about this. I, yeah, I, I think, think it'll be a good game. Yeah, I think this game has a lot of potential. It's, too, it's, in, it's interesting to see that seven and a half point uh, spread to open. I'll be curious to see if that moves down or if that holds. Uh, oh, man, it, it opened uh, at 10. Wait, wait, it opened at 10? I thought it I looked at it. Pre- wow. It, it's been bet down to seven and a half. Wow. Most people, so it moved off of 10 really quickly. It stayed at nine for a little bit, I believe yeah. this morning. So we're recording this uh, Monday night. I believe this morning it was still at nine uh, and I, I grabbed it at nine and it's moved to seven and a half and um, 55%. And, and so I'm looking at this information right now. It's on uh, the live odds page at Action Network. Uh, 55% <laughs> of the uh, the bets are on uh, the Eagles. 70% of the money is on the Eagles. 
Um, so there's some sharp, sharp action that, that took the higher number to drive it down to seven and a half. For me, like the real question is, is this going to get to seven? You know, because I think if it right. hits seven, there will be some major uh, buyback on the Saints. For sure. Wow. So that, that is surprising to see that much movement already. Uh, and I think that is also, just from my perspective, the most intriguing matchup for me, because uh, I think there's a lot of mystery there of how good can the Eagles be? Are the, are the Saints as good as I think that they are? And it does feel like you could see, um, I don't know, I, I guess just like a, a good kind of game that goes to the fourth quarter and you're just curious to see if the Eagles can stay and last with a Drew, Drew Brees led team, you know, with Nick Foles on the other side. The Patriots Chargers game, though, I, I have to say, like, as a Patriots fan, I don't have a very good feeling uh, about that game. As an outsider, though, do you think that uh, the Patriots should be favored by more than four? Does that spread feel right? I think that's fine. Um, but I'm probably wrong. <laughs> like, I'll just say I'm probably wrong. Um, I think some sharp money has already come in on the chargers. Um, and so that line opened at four and a half and it's down at four. Um, I, I already bet on the Patriots. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong. Like I have like very square tendencies. Like I just, I know that about myself now right. at this point after like, uh, a season of, of like really paying attention to line movement and stuff like that. I know like I'm normally, I'm normally off at stuff like this. Gotcha. Well, one thing that I do want to focus on in some episode is kind of going over some of the, I, I guess, um, some of the jargon of betting and maybe some of the things for people out there that are interested in getting more into that heading into next season, you know, some like, you know, some of the basics to get people going. Cause I do think it can be kind of intimidating. There's a lot of terminology, uh, and I think that um, it's something that probably a lot of our listeners are interested in. So maybe we'll hit that up in a couple of episodes. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, okay, big question of the day. Should the Ravens have played Joe Flacco to start the game and at a, the halfway point when it became clear that their game plan and how they had to adjust things to accommodate Lamar Jackson weren't really working? Do you think that they should have considered subbing him in maybe for the second half? That's a good question. Um no, I don't think they should have. Well, let me take this in, in parts. I don't think okay. they should have played Flacco at the beginning. Um, I don't even think that they necessarily even should have put him in uh, at halftime. So like long term, um, I think they would have potentially hurt Lamar Jackson's uh, confidence. And this sounds like such a stupid thing to say, but like I think they would have hurt his confidence um, if they had subbed in Joe Flacco. You know what I mean? Yep. And like if the future of the franchise is Lamar Jackson and that's like what they've committed to, um, I still think, you know, they probably shouldn't be looking at themselves as Super Bowl contenders anyway, given that they're kind of running this. I don't want to say it's a gimmicky offense, but like I, I think you you ride with the guy who brought you there and the guy that you are hoping to ride for the next decade. You know what I mean? So I, I think like it would be short term to to take him out just so you hope you could have a better chance of winning and by the way like they really had a shot even with Lamar Jackson not playing all that well they still had a real shot at the end to win that game um if not for um the missed goal by Justin Tucker you know they would have been much closer um but you know they were driving with a minute left uh and had a chance to win so I I think it was it was fine like I think short term putting Flacco in would have given them a better chance to win the game. But I think like for the health of the franchise, you go with Lamar Jackson. I think that it's hard to look at as an outsider because a lot of the things related to what you just said. And I also think that you definitely can't go into the game. There's no reason to go into that game starting Flacco because really you've seen better results with Lamar than you, than you had with Flacco, I think to start the season and even at halftime, you know, maybe you think that you can get things going. I don't think it would have hurt. Maybe there was a way they could have worked him in for a series later in the game where you just kind of explain, Lamar, we're going to go with Joe for one series. There's a couple of things we want to try. Maybe you play some type of veteran card, some packages that worked with him in the past. I don't know. But to your point, really, if you're the Ravens, I don't think that you can be feeling good about moving on past the next round. Does this one playoff win make that much of a difference in your organization? And kind of beyond that, 
even if you bring in Flacco, really, like, who's he throwing to? You know what I mean? It's not a team that at this point is really built around the pass and that I think would have been able to necessarily prosper that much against yeah. <laughs> the Chargers. So maybe you just hope that Jackson can break an explosive play, I guess, is maybe one of the arguments you could make for leaving him in. Yeah, I mean, I I do think short term, it, it maybe would have been better to bring Flacco in because for, well, for a few reasons. One, I think it's easier to score points faster uh, if you are passing the ball. Yep. Um, and I think Flacco is clearly the superior passer. Right. And I think he has a better connection with John Brown. And like Brown is the explosive guy on that team who who could score a long touchdown if they needed. Um, and then also like kind of from a game theory perspective, like the Chargers weren't they didn't plan all week for Joe Flacco. You know what I mean? So right. if in the middle of the game they made a change to Flacco, that could maybe give them some sort of edge for a series or two while the Chargers were kind of still figuring out what they wanted to do on defense. Yeah, those are great points. So I I think my kind of closing thoughts on this would be, I think if I'm the Ravens, I probably want to, at some point, at least in that second half, explore the option of Flacco going in, which they said they did, but actually get him in at least for a series just to see what it looks like. But yeah, the long-term impact of that uh, may not be worth the reward, the risk that you have there. Of um, and, You know, the other thing too, people forget, like, I understand that these guys are now professional athletes. They played at high levels, but, you know, Lamar Jackson's still a pretty young guy and you don't yeah. want to take a shot on the offense, which I think is something that's easy for us at this point in our lives to lose sight of. Yeah, he's still 21. I mean, he's a I kid. I mean, that's young. That is really young. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I like those points. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. Uh, anyway... We're moving on, as, as I talked about uh, in the opening. I want to talk about some of the things that we look at during prospect evaluation, uh, which is one of the main things that we do at Rotoviz. Uh, we definitely have a track record of coming up with different ways at looking at prospects and really taking, taking an evidence-based approach to prospect evaluation. Uh, the national championship game is being played as we record that or as we record this episode. So it's time to start getting up to speed. But first, Matt, you were one of the earliest RV writers really getting into looking at different ways to evaluate prospects. So take us back to some of the thoughts that you had at the time. Uh, you know, you came up with things like non uh Quarterback dominator quarterback rating. Dominator rating right? is such a horrible name. Which is okay. We've kind of turned that into the workhorse metric now yeah. and you know done some different things. But take us through like, you know, what got you guys, especially yourself early on, looking at some of these different things and you know, maybe how you've uh evolved your thought processes over the years. Yeah, I mean, early on, uh I was just, you know, I was reading the fantasy douches old blog and uh, John Moore had uh the college football experiment. And Sean Siegel was writing his stuff at Money in the Banana Stand. Uh, and I think the biggest thing is just market share. You know, like I was basically like a guy who is, you know, like a Neanderthal trying to create fire with like, you know, stones and, mm -hmm. and sticks, uh, you know, and they're just like, you know, lighting the world ablaze with uh, stuff like market <laughs> share. And I'm like, whoa, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, like shifting from looking at just stuff on like a, a, a raw basis of, you know, like yards per season or um, yards per game 
to market share, which is kind of like, like, I feel like the beginning of, of everything. And, um, you know, Frank, uh, you know, fancy douche and yep. Sean were basically like the, I think the first two guys in the industry, I don't know if they were the first two to be, to be doing it. Um, but they were the first two really to kind of popularize it and to, to show, uh, how much better it is than looking at things just through kind of like the raw production basis. Um, so I think that's really kind of where it started. And so, uh, when you, when you have a perspective that is just different than the perspective most people have, I think that naturally leads you to different types of players. Um, so, you know, whereas most people would be focused on a guy who played, I don't know, like it, like in a spread offense, um, and had a lot of yards, uh, but didn't have high market share. Uh, you know, Frank and Sean were looking at guys who had really high market share and sometimes guys who had both like guys who had fantastic raw production and high market share. Uh, and when that happened, then it was like the, like the gold mine, like that's really the guy you want. Um, and, and I would say like one of the things that I, I probably brought a little bit to, uh, to the group, um, was, and I don't think it was really even articulated so much at the time. And I don't know if it really even paid off so much, <laughs> but I think it I was, it was useful. And I think it is useful. Um, looking at guys who produce in more than one way. So with wide receivers, looking at wide receivers who also have uh, production as runners and as uh, kick and punt returners. Uh, and then at running back, looking at guys who also have the ability to produce as receivers. Um, and, and so especially like that was one thing, um, that I kind of tended to focus on. And so like Tyler Lockett was kind of like the perfect example. And John Moore wrote an early piece on it of Tyler Lockett as a guy who produced, uh, as a return man, uh, as a runner, um, Wes Welker, uh, at Texas tech was a guy who had production like that. Antonio Brown had production like that. And I started noticing that, um, you could find these guys, even if they weren't actually very athletic in like their, their timed measurements, um, they were still uh, pretty productive in the NFL. Um, if they showed that in college, they had this multi, uh, skill set where they could produce in a variety of ways. And it's not even that they would be used in all of those ways in the NFL, but that skill set spoke to their ability as NFL players. Um, so, or, or just football players in general. Um, so that was one of the, the early things that I, I tended to focus on guys who could produce in a variety of ways. It's really interesting, I think, because one of the things over the years that we've done at Rotoviz is try to take things that would make intuitive sense and prove them to be wrong. But I think a lot of the things that you guys were looking at actually lined up with your intuition. And it's funny now to think that at a point in time, just looking at something like market share and comparing a player to the other players on his team was this really exciting thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember when you guys, I was reading at the time, were coming up with different stuff and I'd be sitting there waiting and hoping like to get the next, uh, you know, different idea that would come out and hopefully there'd be a table and dropping into this little database that I had at the time and stuff. So it, it's pretty crazy, but I do think, especially the point of one of the things that's been realized over the years is that there's different types of players. Some players need the athleticism, other players, it's not as important because like you said, there's things that they can do or certain skills they have that don't bear out just purely in the measurables. But when you can see them using their athleticism in different ways, it becomes clear that there's something there that you can't see. Uh, so th that, you know, it's just really um, interesting. I think if you've not gotten into kind of the evolution of some of these and looked at a lot of these metrics that have been discovered at Rotoviz over the years, going back and reading through some of them is like, I don't know, at least if you're as nerdy as I am, it's pretty exciting. Well, and I should say like one of the things that one of the things that's interesting is that, um, I mean, I was just a reader, uh, and then I turned into a writer and that's how it was with Kevin Cole. Uh, it sounds yep. like that's how it was with, with you. Right. Uh, I think that's how it was with Josh Hermsmeyer. Yeah. Right. Like it's, you know, one of the things that was really cool, I think about Rotoviz back in the day. And, and I think it's, it's probably still true with the site now is that, um, the people who are subscribing are very smart people, um, people who are super committed both to like to to fantasy uh, and like to teams and then also to the evaluation process. Um, they're, they're people who uh, ask questions uh, and, and try to find an edge however they can. And I think that drives the analysis forward. 
uh, and some of those people become writers. Some of them, uh, they don't become writers, but they make the writing better because they, you know, they interact, they interact on Twitter, they send emails, they ask smart questions. Um, so I think it's, it's a really good ecosystem in which, uh, people are continually looking for the next thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And yeah, I could speak all day about how, um, like just reading, Rotoviz and, and paying attention to all the stuff that the community and the other writers do has actually like made me a smarter person overall, um, permeated into a lot of other things. But uh, to keep this kind of with the metrics, and we'll talk about some more of these in more depth in later episodes, but I just kind of wanted to give a little history here. At this point, Matt, is there one metric that really stands out to you that you rely on more than others or you find yourself always going back to each season, be it at running back, at receiver, quarterback maybe? Yeah, it's basically always some sort of market share. And maybe it's adjusted in certain ways. Um, the thing is, there's still no easy way, um, ex- probably except for R, and, and maybe not even an R, to, to, and this is why I need to learn R, uh, to mm-hmm. make some of the adjustments. Um, so if I want <laughs> to make so, some adjustments, yep. um, it's, it's just me slogging through Excel, cutting and pasting a whole bunch of stuff yep. and it's not really worth the time. Well, let so, me say this. We, we, we spent hours this weekend talking about that very thing. So hopefully we'll have a solution at some point, but continue. Yeah. So, um, but, but market share, you know, whatever, whatever adjustments you make to it, um, you know, to fine tune it in some way, that's great. Um, but in the end, I think market shares is always kind of like the, uh, the, the ultimate measure for how players tend to do. And, and, you know, like if I had, um, the perfect player, I would want a guy with high market share and high raw production, <laughs> you know, cause like, uh, cause otherwise I'm still always a little bit scared about someone like, um, Stephen Hill. Right. Or, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, and, and granted, like I, I can look at a situation like that and be like, well, he's playing in a triple option offense. So it, it's a little bit different. Um, and you can, you can sort of distinguish between guys who played in a triple option. Maybe you could be like, okay, well, Demarius Thomas played in the exact same offense and he at least had over a thousand receiving yards, whereas Stephen Hill didn't. Right. Um, you know, and, and he still had uh, superior market share too, but you know, so yeah, in the end it still comes down to, to market share. I think market share for certain statistics matters more than it does for others. So market share for yards for me is really important. Uh, versus market share for touchdowns um, because touchdowns are such a fluky thing anyway, but yards are a little stickier. Um, and so I, th- I think it, it means more. Um, but I think like uh, for touchdowns, like the raw number of touchdowns actually is still kind of significant. I don't give as much weight for touchdowns as I do for yards, but market share in general, whatever way you're evaluating players, uh, I think if you don't have some market share perspective, in your, you know, analytical lens, you're probably looking at things uh, in a inefficient way. Definitely. The the other thing too that's been interesting to see uh, over the years is the different ways that age can be incorporated, and that we really have yeah. found that you want guys to be as young as possible. And I think that right. we're starting to see that really yeah. bear out in a lot of great examples. Yeah, I mean, if if all you did when you were selecting rookies was just draft the youngest guys you could find um, at whatever pick it is that you have, you probably would have a competitive team within a couple of years. You know, like you could do a lot worse than that. Um, The one thing I will say is, and like I never really took the time of, uh, I don't know, because I I researched it, but I never wrote about it all that much. Um, It's not that uh, people at Rotoviz are overvaluing age, but mm-hmm. like age next to experience, I think is like the right way to, to look at it. Um, because there were some guys who would maybe like redshirt a year, um, or mm-hmm. like would, you know, would transfer whatever it was like there, there were these guys who would maybe get kind of knocked a little bit from an age perspective. And it was like, yeah, but this guy has still played only like two seasons of college football. Like you shouldn't look at him as like just a 22 year old, you should look at him as some sort of combination of a guy who's 22 and a guy who's in his second season. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And actually, while we're talking about this, uh, Blair and I talked about this this weekend. 
uh, a little bit, but I'm going to ask you, have you ever looked or read anything that relates to kind of looking at conference adjusted production players in relation to just their conference? I started doing that. Uh, but what I found was when you kind of try to create baselines for the conferences, you more or less get pretty similar measures. And Blair seemed to to uh, recall reading stuff in the past that kind of showed that you don't really get that far going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So... I feel like this, this brings back like the Odell Beckham thing, (laughs) like the, like the biggest thing, one of the biggest knocks against Odell Beckham was that when he played against SEC opponents, he had really subpar production Yep, and maybe that mattered, but it was such a small sample. And then like when you put that next to the other things, um, and also market share, uh, his lack of market share, but like when you put that next to the fact that he was a high first round pick. Um, he was incredibly athletic. Um, he still had, you know, over a thousand yards receiving, uh, in his final college season. Um, he was by no means old, you know, he was probably someone who, uh, Rotoviz was <laughs> too far down. Yeah, on, we were, <laughs> you know, so, so like, uh, that's really kind of like the, I, I think that scared everyone away a little bit from looking at, um, from looking at conference conference only games right. too much. You know what I mean? Uh, I think there, there is something there. Like for instance, um, if, if a running back is drafted from the sec and he has like a certain level of production, he clearly just historically has a better chance of producing in the NFL than a back with the same production uh, drafted from, I don't know, like the Mac or yeah. something like that. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so like there is, there is something there, uh, in some instances, but I don't think it can be applied across the board. I think it's sort of just in certain exceptions. Yeah. That's, that, that was kind of more or less the conclusion that we came to. And a lot of that goes back to, to, to talking about how much data you have to make your way through to really get it, teasing out some right. of that stuff and doing right. these adjustments and whether or not it's worth it. I, I mean, I think it's, it's always worth it in some sort of like contextualized way right. where it's not necessarily like you're going to make your decision based on this. But one of the earliest pieces on the site was uh, John Moore looking at DeAndre Hopkins in all of his games against SEC teams. And, you know, because he played three seasons uh, and, you know, Clemson was a good team that played uh, a rigorous out-of-conference schedule, um, he ended up playing, like, a sizable number of games against SEC teams. Uh, And so, like, like, there there wasn't any more need to like DeAndre Hopkins, but, like, the fact that he was a, an ACC receiver who was totally tearing it up whenever he was playing against the SEC just made him, like, just a little bit more intriguing. Yeah, you know? and that's a good example because it's a little bit different than if you're trying to go through and look at every player in the confines of his conference. That, that's right. right. That's a layer. You can see he's producing what he should be doing in his conference, but it extrapolates out of the conference. Yeah. Um, or maybe extrapolates not the right word right there, but it, it actually holds when you go outside of the conference. So... We can all agree at this point, I think, that draft position, age, certain elements of production are key inputs. But at this point, Matt, how much emphasis do you place on the combine and the actual physical measurables? That's a good question. I probably place too much emphasis on it, um, but I I don't know. I do because uh, – well, I need to contextualize this. Sure. Like it's the first real evidence we have of a guy's athleticism or his physical measurements or anything like that. Like before that, you know, we have these whispers of, oh, a guy might run in the four threes or a guy was hitting uh, this time or getting this vert in his, you know, in, in training sessions or a guy was able to do this uh, when he was a five-star recruit or whatever it was, or, or he ran like a, a four, four, five in spring practice. So, or, or you know, like <laughs> it's like, Oh, this guy, he yeah. was this size when he was a freshman, but he's grown two inches and gained 20 pounds. And now he's this size. Like we literally know nothing about these guys. Uh, like all we have is just like rumors. So what I like about the combine is that like, it's this one time, where like all of these guys are there, um, they're all measured in, even if it's not like perfectly uniform, in a relatively uniform way, and we finally get some hard data 
on these guys, their size, and their athletic capability. So I really like the combine because it gives me more data and like a pretty solid group of data. Um, so that said, uh, like after that, um, I pay attention to it only like in specific ways. So for instance, like if, if there's a huge wide receiver, um, it's nice if he's also fast, but I kind of don't care how fast he is. You know (laughs) what I mean? Because like, because he's like, unless he's like Calvin Johnson, like his job isn't necessarily going to be a guy who's just burning down the field. Like he's probably going to be kind of slotted for like the quote unquote, like big bodied wide receiver role, regardless of how athletic he is. You know what I mean? Um, if a guy is small and, uh, I, I care much more about his athleticism if he's small because he needs to be athletic. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and, and then especially if he doesn't have like the multifaceted skill set that I talked about earlier. So, like Antonio Brown um, was able to succeed, I think, because he was agile uh, and because he was just such a good football player. And you could see his football skill uh, manifest not only in his receiving production, which from a market share perspective actually wasn't all that good, uh, but uh, through his rushing and return capabilities. Uh, the same thing with someone like Wes Welker. Um, and those guys had good agility, but they didn't have good speed. If there's a wide receiver who doesn't have those other ways of producing and he's small and he doesn't have good speed, like that guy will never be on my team. You know what I mean? Like yep. that's like that. So I tend to use um, the combine uh, athletic measurables more as something to disqualify players instead of something to like really fix where they are on my draft board. So I guess I look at it a little bit more in the extremes. If there's a huge guy who's super athletic and he has all of the production I care about and production is still the most important thing, but if he has all of the other production uh, measure, well, let me rephrase that draft position is the most important thing (laughs) and and then then production. But if he has those other things and he's big and he's fast, then he, he bumps up on my board. But I don't know, like I care about the combine, I care about it as some sort of event, um, but I don't really privilege it like hugely across the board. Yeah, no, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it brings back to one of the things that uh, has also been done on the site is trying to bucket players into different groups because there's certainly for certain molds or types of players, things that you're going to want to look at more, things that a player of that profile needs that if they don't have are going to be problematic. I think one of the most recent examples was a guy like Ronald Jones, who you didn't see do a, a whole lot at USC other than being a rusher who, yes, was explosive at times, but you really wanted to see him being very fast. Now, his case was kind of, kind of convoluted because there was questions about injury and you didn't really think that you got that true 40 time, but it was a good example of if a guy, his only real attribute is straight line speed, you're going to need to see that actually bear out in the measurable. So there's a lot about looking at the context uh, and, and looking at each player in their specific, which is why it's hard to really pin it down to just one or two metrics you can look at, but you have to start looking at all of these different inputs. Yeah, I mean, the thing and talking specifically about Ronald Jones, I think he's an interesting Alex, uh, like, sort of, not test case, but just example. Um, draft position matters. He had that. Age matters. He really had that. I think yep. he was the the youngest runner uh, in the class, or at least at least one. I of think Carryon Johnson might have been younger. Yes, yes, yeah. I think you're right, but he was one of the the few 21 yep. year old rookies. Um, so like like he really checked the box in, in those two ways. Uh, and then he was productive in college, but as you mentioned, wasn't productive as a receiver, which is really, that's, that's increasingly important in the NFL. Uh, and so it was the situation where, um, like he's on my dynasty team. I, I actually didn't really want him, but I thought he fell too low and I'm like, okay, well, this is a guy who might be a lead back and he's 21 years old and he has decent, you know, draft position yep. and he produced in college. Like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take the discount. Um, but yeah, it's it gets to this question of um, like the ecosystem of the NFL is changing. And so what might have been important um, five to 10 years ago for players might not be as important moving forward. Um, and so I'm paying much more attention now to uh, receiving capability for running backs than I was five years ago, even though I, I thought it was important. I thought there there were still guys who could function, who could produce 
without the ability to uh, to catch the ball out of the backfield. I think uh, it's much harder now for guys to do that. For sure. And <laughs> this makes me feel it necessary to, to, to bring up. As I was looking through a lot of this conference stuff, um, one of the players that kept popping and everything I was looking at was Bishop Sankey. Yeah, I just I don't even. I, I mean, what you know? Here's the thing: I would do it again. Yeah, like, I would. I would be the guy who's wrong once again on Bishop Sankey. He had decent enough size. He had you know he had good speed, good agility. He could catch the ball out of the backfield. You know, there were there were a lot of things to like about Bishop Sankey. It just you know it didn't work out. Yeah, and, and it's hard to say like why why it didn't work out with him. Well, Some, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out. You know, there's certain articles that I actually remember. I remember, I wish I could remember remember who wrote it and I tried to look it up. Somebody comparing Dante Moncrief to the Hydra. I can remember when the like the first Freak Score article came out being so excited about that. And I actually also can distinctly remember being hooked by your take on Bishop Sankey and actually yeah. telling my brother like, dude, I got to get Bishop Sankey early yeah, in drafts I, this year. I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. I mean, like Bishop Sankey is so ingrained as like a, a part of old school road of his. And I think you know this. Like, I think I've even said this before. Like he is still like I have passwords yes, yes. that have to do with Bishop Sankey. Yeah, I actually like, like the road of his podcast has passwords that have to do with Bishop Sankey. <laughs> oh, it's so fantastic. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, that's all the football stuff I had planned for this show. I was trying to keep it a little bit uh, concise so that uh, I can get to not only watching the national championship game, but getting some preliminary financial statements out, which is not fun. Uh, uh, does your dog quick, sleep in your bed? That That's an excellent question. And the answer is obviously yes. Um, quick question. Yep. Did you place uh, any sort of wagers on the national championship game? Um, I really wanted to. And I was thinking about it. Uh, I, I looked at Alabama was at six at one point. I kind of wanted to say Clemson, then it moved down to five and a half. And what I was looking at, and it's funny that that, that half made me not want to take Clemson. So I, yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I, I, yeah. I just didn't have a good feeling either way. Um, and I kind of just wanted to watch the game as a spectator, actually, this time and take out the uh, element of the betting. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. What did yeah, you have? Uh, I had Clemson Futures. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm... I'm obviously rooting for Clemson, but I, I did uh, bet on some props. Um, I did take uh, some small hedge type of bets uh, in case Alabama wins. Like uh, so, anyway. But yeah, uh, I'm I'm heaviest on Clemson. I'm still so upset that I didn't get in my uh, my huge bet I wanted to make on Clemson uh, covering against Notre Dame. Um, but yeah. okay. Yeah. So the dog does sleep in the bed. Yeah. I have a little oh, dog too. Yeah. Dog sleeps in the bed. Some people think it's weird. Um, but just to contextualize this, is the dog like up on the pillow with you? Is the dog at the foot of the bed? She, she roams around. So there's like, a, there's like a story with the dog sleeping in the bed. So, uh, my wife and I, we used to live in Colorado. We had friends who, uh, had dogs, had a number of dogs and one of the dogs died. So, um, my, my wife was kind of saddened by that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Bella, our dog, she, uh, used to sleep in like a kennel by the bed. Okay. Uh, and so she was like, can, can Bella sleep in the bed tonight? And I was like, oh, okay, fine. You know? And that, that was it. Like she never went back into the kennel. Yeah. Once they've touched the bed, <laughs> they're not going anywhere else. Yeah. We tried to, uh, when my daughter was first born, uh, and not sleeping very well or anything would wake her up. Not that she sleeps well at this point at all. Uh, it's my only, our only challenge with her. Uh, the dog had to try to stay downstairs and that did not go well. So she's, she's firmly back in bed, uh, going through a very annoying thing now, waking me up in the middle of the night. Cause she's getting older to, to go to the bathroom. Um, yeah, so, that, that would be annoying. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And then it's tricky cause you have to find the balance of getting her out before she makes too much noise that she doesn't wake up Elise. But at the same time, sometimes taking her out, just the act of doing that wakes Elise up. Um, so we, we kind of, we kind of can't win. Um, God, this is a full on dad mode conversation. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. <laughs> anyway, um, any other thoughts on dogs sleeping in the bed or we'll close up here? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think it depends on the size of your beast. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, 
if it, if it's a smaller dog, I think it's pretty easy for the dog to be in the bed without it like really disrupting anything. If it's a huge beast, and then especially if you have multiple dogs, that's pretty hard. So yeah, well, I think I, if it's I think if it's just one and it's small, it easily can go in the bed. Yeah, and I don't know why people seem to think it's that weird. It's like you fall asleep on the couch with the dog all the time. The dog in the bed yeah. isn't that, especially when they're small. Although I will say that uh, dogs have no conception of personal space. So though no. though my dog no. weighs yeah. six pounds, she probably takes up more. I find myself ceding so much bed uh, surface area to her that it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you just have to do it because you can't like roll over on the dog. You'd crush it. <laughs> right. You know, so. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Once again, I'm Dave Cabin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF. My co-host was Matthew Friedman, who you can follow at Matt F. The Oracle. This has been Rotoviz Radio. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review and be sure to tune in next week. And remember, it's not a fantasy if you believe it. Thank you for listening to Rotoviz Radio. Please rate, review, and contact us via email at rotovizradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Rotoviz Radio and support the pod by subscribing to Rotoviz at a 30% discount through the listener homepage at rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.